You can summarize the drivers of the humanitarian crisis in Yemen with four words that begin with I. The four I's. So the first is inequality. Yemen is the most unequal country in the Middle East in social and economic terms, and one of the most unequal countries in the world. There are people who are fabulously wealthy, and most of the population uh, lives in abject poverty. Additionally, it's about 10 or 15% of people in Yemen who were socially marginalized in a sort of caste system and seen as only fit to do um, jobs beneath everyone else. When I go to Yemen, I eat well, I go to the supermarkets and I see them fully stocked. So there's no shortage of goods. Um, the problem is that people can't afford them. The, the reason people can't afford them is explained by the other three eyes. The second is um, infrastructure. We're talking about critical civilian infrastructure. More than 50% of the health facilities, the clinics and the hospitals um, throughout the country have been damaged or destroyed since the beginning of the conflict. The third is imports. Yemen is an incredibly import-dependent country. Um, Yemen imports 90% of its food and about 50% of its fuel. Since this conflict escalated in 2015, it's been choked off. And lastly, institutions. Yemen has roughly one quarter of all families relying on civil service incomes. But civil servants haven't been paid their salaries in nearly four years. It's really hard um, to get a decent education or decent health care when your teachers and healthcare workers aren't getting paid themselves. Yemen remains the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Fighting since 2014 has pushed the Arab world's most poverty-stricken nation to the brink of disaster. To the Middle East now, where the chaos in Yemen has suddenly expanded into a dangerous regional war with Iran on one side, Saudi Arabia on the other. The humanitarian crisis in the world is unfolding before our eyes, and the United Nations now says that 14 million people are on the brink of starvation. The United States is a key player in actively causing the famine right now. We are backing a Saudi war in Yemen that is actively blockading food. Today is Tuesday, August 11th. The Yemeni crisis is entering its ninth year. Yemen is home to 30 million people. It's located in the southern Arabian Peninsula and it borders Oman and Saudi Arabia. It also bears the vital strategic Bab el-Mandeb Strait, which is a small channel of water that separates the Middle East from Africa and is responsible for the transport of 4 million barrels of oil per day. But unlike the highly prosperous oil-dependent nations of Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates, Yemen is struggling. Badly. In the midst of a global pandemic, 10.5 million have no access to any healthcare, 3.5 million have been displaced, and 24 million are starving. Years of conflict have left scores dead. While the official death toll stands at 10,000, the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Organization estimate over 100,000 have died from warfare, and an additional 85,000 children have died from starvation in the last five years alone. So the question is, how did it get this bad? How did Yemen become the worst humanitarian crisis in the world? From the early 60s until the early 90s, Yemen was actually two countries. There was North Yemen and there was South Yemen. People have inhabited the Arabian Peninsula for thousands of years, but the nation of Yemen is modern. Since the advent of Islam, Yemen has been the battleground of conflict, but our story begins in the late 1980s. Like Vietnam and North Korea, Yemen served as a proxy for the Cold War. 
the Arabic Republic of Yemen to the north versus the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, backed by a socialist state in the south. But in 1990, the USSR begins to collapse. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Northern and southern Yemen reunify. The president in the north, Ali Abdullah Saleh, becomes the president of Yemen. The president in the south, Ali Salim al-Bid, becomes the vice president. That same year, the Gulf War began with Iraq annexing and invading Kuwait. The U.S. gets involved to counter Iraq. Then Yemen steps in, saying, Not so fast. Non-Arab states should not be involved in the Middle East. And so the U.S. and Saudi Arabia retaliate. Now at this point you're probably wondering, why is Saudi Arabia upset? Let's take a step back and briefly discuss the United States' relationship with Saudi Arabia. If you look at the U.S.-Saudi relationship since the 1940s, um, it's, it's endured a lot of ups and downs, but it's continued. There are three main reasons. Let's start off with the obvious, oil. Oil is a crucial component to the Saudi economy, comprising 42% of its GDP, or $140 billion each year. The U.S. is one of the biggest importers of Saudi oil, importing 900,000 barrels of crude oil from Saudi Arabia every single day, or 330 million barrels a year. Then, Saudi Arabia returns the favor. Saudi Arabia is the number one buyer of U.S. arms. We're talking planes, tanks, boats, big weapons, the whole shebang. In the past 10 years, the Saudis have spent $350 billion on U.S. arms, and the Middle Eastern arms sales have increased 80%. We Americans love our guns, but the Saudis do too. The last reason might not be immediately obvious to you. You've heard it said that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Iran and Saudi Arabia have one of the fiercest rivalries in the world. On the geopolitical side, um, Iran certainly wants to be a dominant power in the region and wants to control the uh, Persian Gulf area. Uh, and because of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, it has been able to extend itself into Iraq since 2003. And this made the Saudis very, very nervous because it's, uh, they saw it as Iran gaining more and more hegemony in the region. It just so turns out that the U.S. and Iran haven't been so hot recently. So when the U.S. brokered with Iran in 2015, things got very messy. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Back to Yemen. American and Saudi embargoes cause Yemen to spiral into economic distress. Discontent sweeps the nation. So in the mid-1990s, Vice President al-Baid attempts a revolution to overthrow Saleh, but he fails. He's replaced by Abrabu Mansur Hadi. Remember this name. In 1999, Yemen holds its very first presidential election. Saleh holds on to the presidency, and Hadi is his right-hand man in the VP spot. This has to be deliberate, folks. Well, that would begin to say that, yeah. We just saw on live television as a second plane flew into the second tower of the World Trade Center. Enter Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, or AQAP, is the strongest branch of the jihadis. To this day, AQAP holds about a third of eastern Yemen. In 2001, President Saleh assures the U.S. that Yemen is engaged in the war on terror. The U.S. is given a green light to enter Yemen. There's also this terrorism issue because um, in the chaos of the Yemen situation, Al-Qaeda and then later ISIS 
uh, have been able to establish some strongholds in the area. And um, at one particular time, and it may still be the case that the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Yemen, which is called Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, was the most active in anti-U.S. plotting. It's probably about time we introduce this guy you've been hearing from. Gregory Aftandillion holds joint appointments at George Mason University, Boston University, and American University. Well, I worked in the U.S. government for over 20 years. I was a Middle East analyst um, at the State Department. Previous to that, I was with the uh, Pentagon. Um, and then I went to Capitol Hill. I worked um, for Senator Ted Kennedy as a fellow for a year on foreign policy issues. I also was a staffer on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and then finally a uh, foreign policy advisor to uh, Congressman Chris Van Hollen, who's now a senator from Maryland. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Arab Center. He's been keeping a close eye on Yemen for over 20 years. And about 16 years ago, in northern Yemen, something big happened. Here's the thing. There are two main forms of Islam, Sunni and Shia. Around 85% of Muslims are Sunni. Early 2000s Yemen, she's Sunni, which was perfectly fine with Yemen's neighbor, Saudi Arabia, the flagship Sunni nation in the Middle East. But in 2004, a Shia insurgency from the northern region of Yemen begins to gain traction. They're led by Hussein al-Houthi. His followers become known as the Houthis. The Houthis were originally an educational and social movement, um, but they morphed into a political movement and had a series of conflicts with the regime of former President Saleh in the early 2000s. Um, throughout that time, they aligned themselves loosely with Iran. Um, it's under dispute how much support Iran gives the Houthis, but it's widely accepted that they um, currently share quite a lot of interests um, and also are seen to be of like minds in part because of their theological links. That was Scott Paul. He's the humanitarian policy lead for Oxfam America, which is a nonprofit aiming to tackle the roots of poverty and create lasting solutions alongside its 19 other international affiliates. In short, um, my job is to advocate for U.S. policy that supports and upholds the rights of people living in conflict and in other humanitarian crises. Uh, I've worked for Oxfam for more than eight years in a similar role, more or less. And uh, since 2015, I spent a very, very substantial amount of my time focusing on Yemen um, because the U.S. has played an important role first in uh, creating the crisis, uh, because the U.S. is an important actor in the humanitarian response as a donor, um, and because Yemen is the location of the world's largest humanitarian crisis. Um, we've worked in Yemen for more than 45 years, and since the humanitarian crisis escalated in 2015, um, we have reached more than 3 million people with um, support for um, support to fight hunger, um, access to clean and safe water, promotion of public health and hygiene, sanitation support, um, and other uh, ways to support women's rights and promote gender justice. The Houthis begin to build their forces in Yemen, but they remain relatively quiet. That all changes in 2012. At this point, Saleh is still the president, 
and Hadi is still the vice president. The Arab Spring blossomed across North Africa and the Middle East as old regimes were swept up by winds of change. However, that all changes when an assassination attempt leaves Saleh incapacitated. He's forced to step down, and Hadi becomes president. In 2012, when Hadi is sworn in, Yemen undergoes vast democratic reforms. He meets with President Obama at the White House and takes a strong stance against AQAP. But the Houthis aren't happy, because they aren't represented in the unification government. So in 2014, the Houthi rebellion begins. Former President Saleh, vengeful of having been ousted, still has a significant number of troops that are loyal to him. They join forces with the Houthis, and in a matter of months, the Houthis take over the capital of Sana'a, and President Hadi is forced to flee to Aden in southern Yemen. Then, the Houthis take over Aden, and President Hadi flees to Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. On February 6, 2015, the Houthis declare themselves in charge of Yemen. The United Nations, the Arab League, and the Gulf Cooperation Council condemn the Houthis, led by Saleh. There's a Sunni-Shia conflict where uh, Iran has been assisting various Shia groups and militias throughout the Arab world, and the Saudis see themselves as the defender of the Sunni uh, Muslim world in the Arab uh, context, and uh, they are opposed to uh, the, Saudi, uh, the Iranian uh, encroachments or Iranian assistance to some of these Shia groups. Uh, Yemen, of course, is in the southwestern corner of the Arabian Peninsula, and uh, the Saudis uh, saw uh, the Houthi rebels who practice a form of Shia Islam, which is a little bit different from the Shia Islam practice in Iran, but nonetheless, they see that as a threat uh, to the stability of the Arabian Peninsula. We also have seen reports that Hezbollah from Lebanon, uh, which is allied with Iran, has sent some operatives down to Yemen on Iran's behest. Um, and uh, that makes sense because, you know, Iranians are Persian speakers for the most part, and Hezbollah uh, from Lebanon are Arabic speakers, which uh, is the same language, though, of course, in dialects, but nonetheless the same language as the people in Yemen. So it would make sense for Iran to send Hezbollah operatives down to Yemen. Because they're both Shia, rumors begin to float that Iran is backing the Houthi insurgency. And because Iran and Saudi Arabia are long-standing foes, Saudi Arabia backs Yemen. But they do much, much more. Yemen has a long history of going to war amongst Yemenis and settling conflicts amongst Yemenis. Um, people die and people are impoverished through these conflicts, but they are resolvable, and Yemenis have a history of resolving conflicts amongst themselves without drawing the entire country into crisis. But what happened when uh, President Hadi went to Saudi Arabia and asked for foreign intervention is the Saudis and the Emiratis and a number of other Arab countries with the support of the United States and the United Kingdom um, felt this was an opportunity to demonstrate uh, uh, Saudi Arabia's and the UAE's prestige and power in the region, um, and they were going to restore this transitional government back to power. Saudi Arabia assembles a coalition consisting of the United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, Bahrain, Jordan, Morocco, Sudan, Egypt, and Pakistan. And because the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are allies, the U.S. also jumps in. Yemen reaches a fever pitch. 
For months, Saleh has been negotiating with the Saudis for peace. However, the Houthis find out and kill him. The Houthis are now a rogue state. Houthi rebels say they have launched multiple drone attacks on a military airbase in southwestern Saudi Arabia. The thing to understand about the war in Yemen is that it really isn't about Yemen at all. It's about Iran keeping Saudi Arabia distracted. In 2015, when the Houthis took over the line ministries of the Yemeni government um, and became the military opponents of Saudi Arabia, this would have been a very attractive opportunity for Iran. Iran, uh, by demonstrating it can come to the aid of various Shia groups in the Arab world, um, is, is, is in a bigger position than to uh, be a player in the Arab world. It's about the U.S. supporting Saudi Arabia because of regional diplomatic agreements. You may remember hearing about one of those agreements not so long ago. Well, I think Obama's um, approach was basically to mollify the Saudis and some of the other Gulf Arab states because they were opposed to the Iran nuclear deal. And uh, by showing support in 2015 for the Saudi-led coalition, this was a way to mollify the Saudis in particular. The Iran deal, or Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, was an Obama-era accord intended to prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons. It mandated that the Iranians decrease their ability to enrich uranium, the primary element used to create nuclear warheads. In return, the U.S. would lift economic sanctions on Iran, allowing the Iranian economy to breathe again. And in March 2015, when the young crown prince, who had recently become, uh, at the time deputy crown prince, who had recently become defense minister of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, um, told the Obama administration that they were going to begin this campaign to restore the government of Yemen. Uh, the U.S. administration said, well, we don't think this is a great idea, but we're going to support you because we'd rather be supporting you in this than trying to denounce you from outside. And it's important to bear in mind at that time also that the U.S. had just announced the JCPOA, also known as the Iran deal, and the Saudis were really mad about it. Now, the United States will tell you that it's assisting with intelligence, targeting, and logistics, but that's far from reality. US, the U.S. relationship to Yemen and to the Arabian Peninsula as a whole, um, you can look at through two different prisms. One is through the prism of bilateral relations with Sana'a. The U.S. has traditionally seen the Sana'a as the power center in Yemen, and so if Sana'a says there's a threat in Yemen to us and it's a threat in Yemen to you, the traditional U.S. reaction is how many bombs and how many guns can we give you? And that was more or less what former President Saleh did. He played his rivals against each other, and he used um, the lack of U.S. understanding of Yemeni politics to earn himself a strong international supporter and a lot of weapons. The other stream, which is slightly broader, is that the U.S. has never regarded Yemen to be particularly important. Yemen is seen by most U.S. policymakers and has been for a long time as Saudi Arabia's poorest southern neighbor. And so generally, U.S. policy has 
towards Yemen has been seen through the prism of U.S.-Saudi relations. For starters, the U.S. runs massive refueling campaigns with Saudi jets. This allows them to operate longer and further. Just how much fuel, you ask? 40 million pounds worth of fuel in the last 18 months alone. The United Central Command has released a statement that U.S. tankers offload fuel regardless of what the target is or whether the mission has been pre-planned and extensively vetted. Bear in mind that a third of these airstrikes have hit civilian targets and have resulted in tens of thousands of deaths. And then there are the drones. What the U.S. has called the Yemen Plan has been a low-tempo air and drone campaign, which began in 2010 and has cost $600 million. This, too, has led to thousands of Yemeni deaths. However much the U.S. tries to deny its involvement, the reality is clear. Let's put it this way. I think in 2015, Mohammed bin Salman, as the new uh, defense minister of Saudi Arabia, I think he had an overly optimistic sense that um, the Saudi-led coalition that he put together was going to easily defeat the Houthis. And of course, that didn't transpire. And uh, it's been this now longstanding quagmire. We're in our fifth year of this uh, war. Um, I think that's what he wants, an ultimate defeat of the Houthis. But I think military reality is that <laughs> that's not going to happen. Um, but I think the Trump administration, because of its strong anti-Iran position and its indulgence of the Saudis, um, in many respects have kind of uh, given them the backbone to continue this war um, against perhaps their better judgment. Um, so uh, this is why I think the uh, U.S. presidential election could be very consequential because um, if the Saudis see that a Biden administration may not be so indulgent um, and supportive of their war effort, perhaps that would then um, lead the Saudis to rethink uh, the whole Yemen issue and perhaps uh, swallow uh, the idea of the Houthis coming into a coalition government. Senators on both sides of the aisle have pushed for legislation ending the sale of arms to the Saudi kingdom. However, both President Obama and President Trump have imposed vetoes, stopping these propositions in their tracks. The Yemen of today is even more complicated than the Yemen of the past. The Southern Transitional Council, backed by the United Arab Emirates, has emerged in Aden. Well, you have the kind of an uneasy relationship between the Saudis and the UAE, the Emiratis, on the Yemen issue. Um, in 2015, they seem to be in sync. Um, but over the past few years, uh, the UAE has broadened its ambitions and has tried now to control some of the southern ports of Yemen as it becomes more and more of a player in the Horn of Africa region. And if you look at a map, you know, those ports in southern Yemen are on the way to the Horn of Africa. So for whatever reason, uh, the UAE wants to be a dominant player in this area. That, and uh, to do so, it uh, supported what's called the Southern Transitional Council. Um, this is a political grouping of disparate factions, but um, you know, South Yemen was once an independent state, 
And uh, many of these people uh, want to hark back to uh, the time when South Yemen could become an independent state once again. So um, the UAE was supporting this group, uh, much to the, the dismay of the Saudis. In light of COVID-19, the Saudis have announced a unilateral ceasefire, but the Houthis have not recognized it. Part of the problem is the refusal of the Saudis to lift their air and sea blockades. In recent years, the conflict in Yemen has centered around the coastal city of Hodeidah and the Bab el-Mandeb Strait. Well, Hodeidah is um, a big, big port for the Yemenis. The Saudis, because they control the airspace over Yemen, um, in other words, supplies can't come in, usually through the air, unless it's mandated by the UN and has to go through all these hoops. Um, so Hodeida has become more and more important over the years. So what impact has this had on the people of Yemen? If you've seen a picture in the past few years of an emaciated young Yemeni child, you usually only see the child. You don't see the family that surrounds them and the choices that have led to the moment with that child having her picture taken in a health clinic. But you have to imagine that for that child to even be there and getting treatment, um, her parents would have had to decide, it's worth my not trying to get a job today and earn daily wages, and it's worth spending everything I've saved for the last three weeks on the journey to the closest health clinic, which is now three towns away because the closest ones have been bombed, um, and, for, and, and essentially putting the rest of my family at risk to see if maybe my most emaciated daughter can be saved. Um, those are the kinds of choices people are facing in Yemen. And I'll just add at the end of this that over the past couple of years, all of the parties to the conflict, and in particular, the Houthi authorities in the north have imposed unacceptable conditions on the delivery of humanitarian assistance. And with that, donors have started to, uh, to cut off and, and to lower their funding levels, some in acceptable ways and some like the US in totally unacceptable ways. Um, humanitarian assistance um, is, it's not quite a band-aid because that doesn't convey the, the scale, uh, but it's never going to be a solution. A political settlement is needed to actually end this crisis and resolve the economic drivers of the conflict. So think of humanitarian assistance as a constant blood transfusion. Um, and at the moment, even that is being choked off by the parties and now some of the donors. This multi-sided conflict has coagulated into the largest humanitarian crisis in the world. This has also coincided with one of the worst environmental disasters in history. For years, land misuse has rendered the earth infertile. Only 2% of the land in Yemen is arable, and only half of that is cultivated. As a result, food production is heavily dependent on imports, and with the port in Hodeida bombed, much of the population is starving. And then there's water. Some communities have always relied on unclean and unsafe water. One of the things that Oxfam has been involved in, both since the crisis and before, is helping municipalities um, develop safe and equitable and sustainable water systems into the future. The Times reported earlier this year that Yemen could be the first nation in the world to run out of water. The water table in Yemen has dropped from 30 meters below surface in 1970 to 1,200 meters below surface today, and the little water that is extracted is used exclusively for agriculture. 
90% of water is used for agriculture and half of that is used to grow cap, a non-nutritious narcotic. 80% of Yemen's population has inadequate water supply to drink and bathe, and those that do have water face the risk of waterborne diseases. Yemen faces the worst cholera outbreak in history with 10,000 cases on a good week. The one thing I, I want to add on the environmental front is Yemen is also home to a, one of the world's largest potential environmental crises, uh, crises, and that is the oil tanker Safer, which is anchored off the coast of Yemen. If that wasn't enough, a super tanker called the FSO Safer, currently anchored in the Red Sea, is in peril of a massive hull breach, containing 1.14 million barrels of fuel. The cargo of the Safer has been valued at 80 million US dollars. Last month, the United Nations said the breach of the Safer could release as much as four times more fuel than the Exxon Valdez did. There's a danger in only talking about Yemen as a disease-stricken war zone. The Yemeni people are some of the most religiously and culturally unique citizens of the world. The country of Yemen itself, from Taiz to Socotra, has some of the most stunning landscapes on planet Earth. So how do we shift the focus away from the Saudi-Iranian-American conflict and back to the people most impacted by this? I hope people don't lose sight of Yemen's history, its natural beauty, its rich culture. But I have to say, when I talk to poor people in Yemen these days, that's not what they want to tell me about. When I talk to people who um, who are uh, receiving clean and safe water from Oxfam, of course they're proud of their country. But what they want is peace. And when I ask them what peace means, peace means a return to normalcy from before 2015. It means they'll be able to go get a job and with the money that they earn, be able to buy what they need for their family and access the social services they need to keep them alive and be able to promise a better future for the next generation. Organizations like Oxfam know what's at stake. On the ground, they're providing aid and relief. In Washington, they're lobbying for change. But it's not enough. Yeah, it's devastating. You think of the conditions that would give rise to a horrific COVID-19 outbreak. Um, malnourished and immunocompromised bodies, people unable to access clean and safe water, people who are living in close quarters, either in their communities or in multi-generational households or in camps for internally displaced persons who've left their house either because it was bombed or because it's unsafe or because there are no jobs there. Um, you, you imagine all of these things together and then you add on top of that there's no adequate health care in most of the communities um, where poor Yemenis are living. For those of us um, working on the ground in Yemen, it's a horrifying sight. There aren't reliable numbers um, on the spread of COVID-19, and there are a lot of people dying in hospitals and a lot of people dying in their homes that we'll never learn about. Um, journalists in Yemen are trying to estimate the spread of COVID-19 by going to cemeteries and trying to figure out the number of excess deaths um, that are taking place uh, over and above those that took place at the similar times last year and the year before. What's really hard about this is that Yemen is simultaneously experiencing um, epidemics of cholera, of dengue fever, of diphtheria, and of other uh, diseases that are uh, waterborne and prey on the malnourished. 
So um, we're never going to get an accurate count, but we know from our experience and from our analysis that this is about as bad as it'll be anywhere in the world. COVID-19 has both ravaged Yemen and resulted in an incredibly low amount of aid to the country. Yemen has received only 18% of the needed aid for 2020 so far. On top of that, conflicts show no sign of stopping. Active fronts have increased from 33 to 43 in the past eight months, and negotiations earlier this year in Stockholm fell through. And five and a half years after this conflict uh, was escalated, it's more complicated, but it's still fairly straightforward. The first step is a ceasefire. The second step is a political settlement between uh, the relevant players who control uh, large amounts of territory. And that in this case is um, the government of Yemen with the support of the Saudi-led coalition, um, the Southern Transitional Council, and the Houthis. And there needs to be some power sharing. Bring all the parties to the negotiating table, including the Iranians, including the Saudis, including the UAE, um, and uh, the Houthis, the Hadi government, the Southern Transitional Council, in other words, everybody to come in and to hammer out some type of um, negotiated settlement. Um, I think if the Houthis were given a significant share of uh, governmental positions and um, they were assured of uh, perhaps governmental uh, development programs um, in their region, which has been which has been neglected under previous um, Yemeni governments, particularly Saleh, even though that's ironic because they were in an alliance with Saleh for a few years. But in other words, Yemeni sovereignty being restored by having foreign forces out of Yemen and a broad coalition government forming. So that would be the ideal scenario in my mind. Um, but um, how we're going to get from point A to point B, I think, is going to still going to be very difficult to achieve. Yemen is different from a lot of other countries where the U.S. is playing uh, a role in the conflict. Um, and in many ways, it's much more straightforward, in part because the U.S. involvement on the military and defense side of the conflict in Yemen never served any uh, clear national or human interest. Um, it served only the interests of strengthening U.S. relationships with Saudi Arabia and the UAE. To take this all five steps back, none of this happens until the warring parties decide on a political settlement. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Finch. Here's how you can get involved. Look in our show notes for links on how to support Oxfam and other relief agencies. What can people do? Call your member of Congress. Call your senators. Let them know that you support relief for Yemen and want U.S. foreign policy to prioritize ending the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. In particular, ask them to stop supporting arms sales to the parties to the conflict. What can people do personally separate and aside from political action? Yes, please support those of us that are responding to the humanitarian crisis. Stay safe, everyone. This was Extempore 3.
Attorney General William Barr is casting doubt on large-scale mail-in voting. Thousands waited hours to cast ballots, and frustration was evident. Election officials say it's important for voters to make their voices heard without jeopardizing everyone's health and safety, so they are making some last-minute changes. And we still have zero precincts reporting. We've just gotten a statement in from the Iowa Democratic Party. I'm going to read you this statement. The 2020 presidential campaign has fundamentally changed amid the coronavirus pandemic, with candidates straining to reach voters virtually, and state and federal officials now rethinking how to hold an election during an outbreak.